Hey, Cross Connection. We're going to be going through Esther chapter four today. So I hope you'll join me for the remainder of this. I think it's going to be enlightening. First of all, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, we pray that you would fill us with wisdom, fill us with discernment. Father God, guide us as we go through your word. And Lord, help it to, to not just be words that we read, Lord, or words that we hear, Father, but it would be truly something that changes our heart. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign to dig around in our spiritual junk drawer, Lord, and highlight things that maybe we've been hiding or missing, Father God, and pray that you would do a work in that. And these things, all we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went to the middle of the city, he cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command at edict reached. They fasted, they wept and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, this kind of drops us right into it. The thing that we need to go back to, we need to look back a little bit at chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, Haman approached the king and got the king to agree to this edict that we're talking about here, where they were allowed to go and slaughter all the Jewish people on a particular day. And it says at the end of chapter 3 that Haman and the king sat down to drink and the city was in confusion. Well, here we see a little picture of some of that confusion. Mordecai hears this. And he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he goes to the middle of the city and he cries loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate. And this is because there was a law that no one wearing sackcloth could enter the king's presence because, quite honestly, the king doesn't want to see any unhappy people. Only shiny, happy people get to approach the king. Uh, it also probably keeps your schedule nice and like opened up and full of pleasant meetings when you don't have to have any of the rough ones. So anyway, there's a great mourning here among all the Jewish people. All over the kingdom, the Jews are reacting to this edict under being under a death sentence. I mean, there's an extinction level event that's been planned and now it's been announced. So Mordecai parks himself outside the king's gate, visibly mourning for everyone to see. Now Mordecai can't go inside the king's gate where his job was. He stuck outside. So not only is he outside the king's gate and can't go in the king's presence at all, can't go in the, in the, even into the, uh, the building there, he can't do his job properly because of how he's mourning. This is the same Mordecai who wouldn't bow down to Haman. And now he's openly debasing himself outside the gate, in mourning, in sackcloth, in ashes. Jews all around the kingdom are doing likewise. And it's interesting here that Mordecai will debase himself before God, but will not bow before Haman. It says a little bit about who Mordecai is. But however, there is one Jew in particular who has been insulated from this news. And we're going to see that here in verse 4. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her. And the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Her response to hearing what's going on is to send Mordecai clothes because she is afraid. So why send clothes and what is she afraid of? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. First one, she's embarrassed by Mordecai's public display and is afraid that it would reflect badly on her or maybe out her as a Jew or just by impl implication, you know, here he is acting up and it's kind of like, this is going to reflect on me. Um, 
The second possibility is that maybe she wants him to come and explain to her what the problem is, but he can't come in in sackcloth or she send him close. We don't know which one it is. It's probably one of those two. But in verse 5, Esther summons Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that has happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. So we see there's a little bit of uh, almost bribery going on in among this also. So she uses here Hathach, one of the king's officials, to serve as her go-between, which indicates that this eunuch most likely knows that both Mordecai and Esther are Jews. But, Morde but uh, Esther, excuse me, has continually found favor with the people around her. So here we see that this one of the king's officials who's serving under Esther now is going and being a go-between for them and is actually probably willing to cover for her, it indicates here also. So, verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction so that Hathach might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king to implore his favor and to plead with him personally for her people. Hathach came and repeats Mordecai's response to Esther. So at this point, Esther has the info and Hathach is effectively part of the crew. Mordecai asks Esther to use her position to plead with the king on behalf of her people. Now it's interesting here that Mordecai sees Esther as the obvious solution to the problem. She has access to the king. She's favored by the king among all women. After all, she is the queen, right? So from the observer's chair, from the outside observer's chair, it seems so simple. But see, we need to remember that to the outside observer, most problems seem pretty cut and dried with obvious and with simple solutions. We tend not to see the difficulties or intricacies involved until we are the ones actually in the hot seat. So point number one, if you're taking notes in your outline today, opportunity often shows up dressed as danger. So Esther responds to Mordecai's instructions to approach the king and to, to plead with him about her people. Well, she responds here in verse 10. Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. The death penalty, unless the king extends the royal scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. See, here we see the problem that Esther sees that maybe Haman doesn't see from the outside. It is dangerous for Esther to approach the king. It could cost her her life. The default for approaching the king was death. The exception is if he lifts the scepter and then she's allowed to live. So it's dangerous. This is a potential, like, this could potentially cost her her life. And on top of that, she, the queen, has not been summoned to the king in 30 days. Now think about this. The queen has not been summoned to the king in 30 days. This indicates to us that Ahasuerus has been finding his companionship elsewhere. She's the queen, but the king has been otherwise occupied. Now, think about what that does 
put yourself in Esther's position when, yes, you're the queen, and yes, you are arguably the, the most highly placed female in the court, and yet at the same time, you haven't seen the king in 30 days or 30 nights. This has got to leave her feeling a little bit maybe self-conscious, a little bit worried about her position. And remember, the whole reason that she has this position is because the last queen ticked off the king and was sent on her merry way. So there's a very real danger for her in this. Um, the realization to her maybe that her position is not as secure as it might appear to those on the outside. 30 days ago, yeah, maybe it would have been easy to approach the king. Now, I haven't seen him in 30 days. 30 days is a long time. And there's a lot of, of doubts that can crop up in that time. But on the other hand, she is the obvious person to bring the plight of her people to the king. She is the, the queen, and she's a Jew. She's under this same death sentence. Point number two, if you're taking notes in your outline, God-given opportunity will require that we be willing to sacrifice. When God presents us with an opportunity, it's going to require some sacrifice on our behalf. And we see that here with Esther. See, we can often find ourselves in situations that seem similar to Esther's. Maybe not we're responsible for the entire race of people from being slaughtered, but we can be in a situation where we feel like we should do something, but we're afraid to lose our position or our popularity or a relationship. We might not feel like our situation is secure enough to take the chance to do what God is calling us to do. So in some ways, it's easy for us to identify with Esther here. And remember, the big step here that Esther's being asked to take comes after a lot of small steps where God has already shown his faithfulness. Same thing happens in our lives. Very often when we're approached with a very big step, there's a lot of small steps or previous steps that have led up to this, that God has shown himself faithful, and this should give us courage. Now, Mordecai here, here's, Esther, here's Esther's response, and he sends one back to Esther. And he says, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. Part of this being, this is verse 13, part of this being, don't think you're going to escape this because people know our connection and Remember, Mordecai is the focus, the focus point for Haman's hatred. So he's very clearly telling her, don't think you're going to get away with this. In verse 14, he goes on, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Point three, if you're taking notes. A God-given opportunity will have far-reaching effects. Far-reaching effects far past what we're going to be able to see. Mordecai tells her, don't think you're going to escape what's coming. Haman's hatred will reach you even in the palace. But he says, relief for God's people will come, but you and your father's house, which includes Mordecai, will be destroyed. Mordecai has probably heard the stories from childhood about when God rescued his people. They've even lived during the time period of one. They're living at a time when the Babylonian captivity has ended. Jews have returned to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. But he has no illusion that in Shushan that they're going to survive. But he says to her, perhaps, perhaps everything in your life, everything before is leading up to this moment. Maybe the situation that Esther's facing 
has been orchestrated by God for his glory and the benefit of his kingdom. Look at the steps that lead up to this. First of all, you have the Vashti incident, where Vashti is removed because she had the audacity to say no to the king. You have the failed military campaign after that against the Greeks. You have a well-placed uncle who serves the king. You have a beauty pageant of sorts that you are a part of. And all of a sudden, you receive assistance because they, you have found favor with them. You receive assistance from members of the king's staff in the process. And then you're chosen from a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands of other women to be queen. Then you have Mordecai happening to overhear the plot to kill the king. And you have Esther being in a position to tell the king about the plot that Mordecai overheard. All these little steps or other steps that led to this moment. It's pretty clear from our vantage point that God has been working here. We can clearly see the hand of an omnipotent and omniscient God at work. Very clearly see in Esther's case, what happens when it's our situation? After all, it's easy to look at other situations like Mordecai looking at Esther's from the outside and give advice from a position of relative safety. But what happens when it's our bacon that's in the pan? If we believe that God is in fact omnipotent, he can do anything, and omniscient, he knows everything, then we need to look at our situation the same way that we look at Esther's. Perhaps we are right where God wants us to be to bring him glory and grow his kingdom. Did God place you where you are? Could he have changed your situation to something different? Yeah, easily. Was he shocked or surprised at your circumstances? If we believe what we say we believe or what we sing during worship, we need to look at the situations that we face and ask the same question that Mordecai posed to Esther. Perhaps I have been placed in this situation for such a time as this. And it applies all over the place. Perhaps I'm in line at Costco by this person for such a time as this. Perhaps I'm in this neighborhood with these neighbors around me for such a time as this. Perhaps I'm working this job or unable to find a job right now for such a situation as this. Perhaps the circumstances that currently have me in sackcloth and ashes wailing to the heavens have been carefully orchestrated to put me in a place that God wants me to be so that I can do something amazing, whether or not it gets noticed by any, anybody else. Let's talk a, little, a minute here about Mordecai. Not Mordecai in the book of Esther, but Mordecai in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934. A guy named Mordecai Ham responded to a group of Christian businessmen in North Carolina, in Charlotte, in 1934 in May. They held an all-day prayer meeting. And the response to that prayer meeting was, we are going to bring a traveling evangelist in and we are going to, we're going we're gonna to have a revival, a series of revival meetings. So the Christian Men's Club and the local pastors invite Dr. Mordecai Ham to hold a series of revival meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thousands of people flock to hear Dr. Ham preaching inside a tabernacle, which is actually just a, a sprawling building they threw up with a sawdust floor just for this occasion. He preached six days a week, morning and night, for 11 weeks. Didn't mince any words about sin, laid it all out there to these crowds of thousands of people. Well... One of the people in that crowd 
was a 15-year-old boy who heard the message of the gospel, and he became a Christian that evening. And that boy's name was Billy Graham. We all remember Billy Graham, but how many people remember Mordecai Ham? He was faithful to take advantage of the opportunity that God put before him. One of the things also that happened in that initial prayer meeting when they decided to bring Mordecai Ham in, one of the men was praying there with Billy Graham's father, and the prayer request that he made was that, Lord, raise somebody up out of Charlotte to preach the gospel to the world. Perhaps he was there that day to make that prayer. Perhaps Mordecai Ham was in a position to respond to that and to come out. And all, these, and all of these perhapses led to Billy Graham becoming a Christian. And we know what happened after that. Billy Graham has gone all over the world, preached to billions, probably, people. There's a picture of him preaching in South Korea to a crowd of over a million people. Google it, look it up. It's a great picture. It's amazing. It's humbling. The thing, though, that Billy Graham said that pushed him over the edge to become a Christian was not the omniscience of God, not the fact that he knows everything, nor was, nor was it the, the omnipotence of God, the fact that he could do everything. What pushed him over the edge, he said, was the love of God. See, we need, we need to remember that while we serve a God who knows everything and is all-powerful, the most amazing characteristic of our God is that his love for us is unchanging. Now, when we put all of these things together, we could put the power of God, the all-knowingness of God, and his amazing love for us together. We put those things together. It gives us a bit of perspective on the situations that we face. Holding on to those facts that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, and that he loves me enough that he would sacrifice his son for me gives me a new way of looking at my situations that I'm in. No matter what it is, even and especially if we can't seem to make sense of what lies in our path. This eternal perspective helps to remind us to choose to obey God and any other response to God-given opportunity is in fact betrayal. Jumping back to Esther, chapter four, verse 15, Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who could be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days night or day, I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther had commanded him. Quick note there, verse 17, Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Look earlier in the book of Esther and see how many times where Esther had done everything that Mordecai commanded her. So we see here that there's a bit of a Role reversal there. But she sends the reply back to Mordecai, get the people to fast for me. Fair implication is that she's also asking them to pray for her. And says, I will fast as well. And in three days, I will take the actions that will either help my people or they will end my life. That's a bold move that she's making. She is stepping out in faith to make this. Luke chapter 33 says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And that verse shows up in all four Gospels. It's important enough that God put it in there four times for us. If you seek to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus, you give your life up to Jesus to guide and direct, no matter which way it goes or no matter what the end is, you're going to keep it. 
because God's perspective is not like ours. Our perspective is very short. It's very temporal. We're very focused on what we're dealing with at the moment. The things that were so earth shattering to us in grade school or high school, those things are not, they're not as important to us anymore because our perspective shifts so quickly, even if it's only a matter of years. God's perspective spans eternity. His plans span eternity. And the best thing that we can do is to have confidence in that and know that if I lose my life to following Jesus, if I give that to Jesus, I'm going to keep that for eternity as I follow him. God is calling Esther to put all her chips on the table. And he's calling us to do the same thing. He's calling you. He's calling me. He wants us to be completely and utterly focused on following him, regardless of whether the situation seems big or small, whether it's the beauty contest side of things or it's approaching the king under the sentence of death. He calls us to trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in the book of Esther your fingerprints all over it, Lord God. We see you setting her up in a position, Lord, where she has the influence even before the need is apparent to everyone else. Father God, help us to be able to see those things in our own life. And even if we can't see it, help us to be confident, Jesus, that you are in fact with us. And God, that you are guiding and directing us and presenting us with opportunities. Father God, help us to take advantage of those. Forgive us, Father God, where we fall short and where we turn our back on those things. Thank you that you are a God of grace and a God of love and that we can start each day anew. Father God, help us to see the opportunities and help us to, to lean into them. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. 